0: This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. At Gottkin, and in this episode, as an investment banker and hedge fund owner, Arnan Sambasivan had privileged access to IPOs and share offerings. He didn't think it was fair, so he founded Primary Bid to level the playing field. You know, imagine a world where you
1: have, you know, your biggest department stores like Harrods and Selfridges or Saks or whoever, and have all their merchandise on sale down 95% through the year. The only catch is you have to be worth a billion dollars or more to. to avail veil of that sale price you know ordinary mortals like us we have to wait in line uh, wait our turn buy full price and not even from the, the department store we're buying full price from a billionaire that bought it one second ago at a 95 percent discount but imagine we lived in that world i can guarantee you it wouldn't last very long and it would quite quickly equalize uh, because there'd be
0: riots on the streets arnan sambas co-founder and ceo of primary bid thanks so much for joining me on the fintech podcast Nice to be here. Um, so, tell us about Primary Bid. Uh, sure, Elliot. Look, uh, our mission
1: at Primary Bid is to make capital markets more inclusive. Uh, and when I say capital markets, I mean everything in the in the public realm. So, initial public offerings and uh, and offerings that happen within the public markets. Um, you know, it's it's funny. It's called an initial public offering, and that's so clear in its intent and purpose yet uh, there is no public involved in the offering anymore and and, uh, our job at primary bid is to make that happen
0: right yeah i remember i think it was back in the 80s you know you used to be able to kind of request a prospectus and you'd fill out the form and you'd apply and you'd you know be able to take part in in ipas but now it just seems to be for insiders but um so just it's so it's not quite a crowdfunding platform for it's not for startups that are raising money just by the It's for companies that are raising money as part of an IPO or secondary offerings and kind of, you know, allowing the ordinary investor to to be a part of that?
1: Yeah, exactly right. So
0: we're completely focused on the public markets.
1: So the birth of a public company happens during an IPO. um, But then post that companies, publicly listed companies raise about a trillion dollars a year um, on, on follow on secondary offerings. And virtually none of that um, is able to go to individual investors; they all go to institutions. And what's the revenue model? It's quite simple, really. We charge a fee uh, to the company
0: um, on what we what we raise. And you, I mean, one of your most high profile partnerships is mm-hmm. with the London Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get through the door at the LSE? Because uh, presumably they must get a lot of. Uh, uh, offers and suggestions of, of partnerships and the like. So, so how did you manage to get through to the people that counted to get them on board as your, I guess, your first and main partner to to help Primary Bid get off the ground as well?
1: Yeah, well, well, interestingly, they weren't our first uh, big strategic partner, but our second. Our first one was with Euronext, If you know they're they're a stock exchange in continental Europe, um, and they operate um uh, you know stock exchanges in 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 France and Amsterdam and in Portugal now in Italy and so on um and we did a deal with them a few years ago uh, an exclusive commercial agreement and and we followed that up with the london stock exchange our relationship with the exchange is extremely natural you know we as a company we're building the infrastructure to allow retail participation in public markets and in, in capital markets um and the stock exchange has a real uh, desire to make the public markets uh, more fair, more transparent, more inclusive, um, and by our uh, technology and infrastructure getting um, implemented in their geographies, it very much achieves that goal. So we was a, it was a very natural partnership. We're both trying to achieve very much the same goals. Um, so you know, once they kind of saw some traction, um, and then you know, once we met and we sort of discussed what we were about, what our key missions were. Um, it really resonated, and uh, you know, we moved quickly towards forging something uh, quite special.
0: And why do you think it is that companies moved away from how things were back in the day when? as I say, retail investors could, you know, apply for prospectuses. I think I remember applying for the computer share prospectus, for example. I mean, obviously there were also uh, state-owned companies that were going public. So I suppose they had to include, um, you know, retail investors in that. But was it the hassle of dealing with so many investors individually and that now you've simplified that process because you kind of, you deal with the individuals and then the company and the exchange just has to kind of deal with primary bid? Is that what makes this now worthwhile for them and, and less hassle? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's amazing if you think about public equity, distributed ownership,
1: tradable. I mean, it's an ins- insanely innovative idea. And it blows my mind that it was invented centuries ago, frankly, right? And um, back then, you know, if a company wanted to raise money, um, the easiest way to do it is from a handful of investors, right? Pre internet, pre all of that stuff. Uh, so it was built. Primarily for institutional investors, not for any other reason, but to bring um, you know a hugely fragmented base of individuals, i.e., the public, in was uh, was difficult, particularly on follow-ons, right? If you think about how quickly they get done, the secondary offerings, um, the administrative burden that goes on with taking these offers, and so on, it you know unless there's a uh, you know process automation um, led by technology, it's just not going to be possible. So, um, thing is. Technology has evolved in this period, um, but this way of doing things has remained very much the same you know you said just now I mean you were you participated in some deals it's it's always been sporadic at best because of these hassles and sometimes there's a, a such a push to sort of deal with the um, the quote unquote burden uh, that used to be there uh, that uh, some companies went and did it now that burden is gone yet that legacy um, you know, idea remains. And um, when companies work with us and just see how easy it is now to involve individual investors, uh, how easy it is to tag their stakeholders in a deal, i.e., their customers, their employees, their shareholders, their friends and family, be able to work with robust data sets in real time and allocate, um, you know, very quickly and easily. Um, it's become, uh, you know, quite a normal thing now particularly in the
0: london market and the two to include um individuals in these offerings if i'm not mistaken i think primary bid was involved with the deliveroo ipo uh, so mm-hmm. you enable people to invest in that now that mm-hmm. uh, let's say it uh, didn't go great in the sense that mm-hmm. the, the shares slumped on their debut um mm-hmm. is there a danger that you know especially a customer focused you know like a b2c company like deliveroo mm-hmm. you know Their customers presumably were among those people that were investing. They Mm. would then think, you know, well, that's not great. I've lost all this money. I'm not going to, you know, use Deliveroo anymore. And as for Primary Bid, you know, that's not great. You know, I've lost money, all thanks to them. I mean, did you get any blowback from from people that bought shares using your platform? Uh, Did Deliveroo get uh, much blowback from uh, disillusioned customers? Well,
1: I'll I'll talk to you about our experience, um, and, and we certainly did not. And it was a very unique case, right? You've never seen uh, this sort of performance um, happen. I think there are a lot of factors that led up to it. Um, but the the real the real point here is we're bringing a new category of participant into the capital markets. This isn't investor investment, and as much as it is about ownership, the reason these invest these individuals came into the deal is because. Um, they've used Deliveroo a lot. Um, they care about the company. They resonate with the brand. Um, they wanted to uh, have a stake in this in this uh, company that is a really big part of their lives. They wanted to have a um, uh, ownership involvement in this. Now, ownership equals investment, sure. And and um, right now, it's it's not not where they uh, invested is as in the prices below their investment price. But hopefully, in time, that changes. But it's, ownership is much, much more than that. And uh, there's an emotional connection, a personal connection, and a lot of things that, that we can do um, to nurture that. And we're really excited about thinking about ownership
0: over just investment. And when it comes to the London Stock Exchange, this particular partnership, is it that you give... Uh, access all, all of the your customers on your platform can have access to all IPOs that are coming on the London Stock Exchange or particular companies have to accept you as, as one of the investors. H- how does it work
1: No so the, the company is always in control on on what it wants to do. Where we come in is we before us, the company, if it wanted to involve, the public, if it wanted to involve its customers, if it wanted to involve its shareholders, it couldn't. There was no way of doing it um, in a real way. Um, and so, when we now, now the company is still in charge of master of its own destiny, and you know, there's no mandate uh, for for a company to to use this, but um, just by virtue of how easy it is, and and frankly, the good governance that it brings, and the good sort of stakeholder centric model, um, that comes with it. Uh, we're finding, you know, this is why we have a leading market share in the FTSE 100, and the FTSE 250, um, because companies that really care about good governance and good ESG see the value in allowing all investors access, uh, and not just a select few. And, uh, it, it, you know, before we came in, that wasn't there. So we're winning, not by my mandate, but just by the fact that we're, um, Showing uh, an
0: additional path that a company can use uh, in in addition to what it actually uh, does in raising capital. Okay, so so it's on a kind of company by company basis, and and it's up to the company as to whether you know people using your platform can be involved in the IPO. Definitely, yeah. It's it's it, it's always in the hands of the company. Okay, and I, what kind of um, you know traction have you been getting in the UK in terms of the number of? Uh, IPOs or secondary offerings you've worked with uh, and also of course on the continent as well uh, via Euronext. Uh, Mm. Do do you notice much of a difference between kind of the uh, embrace that uh, you've received both from investors and companies on on different sides of the channel? Well, in the UK, we've done um,
1: just about 160, maybe just over 160 deals. It ranges from the biggest companies in the country listed on stock exchange so FTSE 100 companies like Compass Group, Ocado, Taylor Wimpy, um, uh, down to big brand names like like Aston Martin, William Hill, uh, Hypnosis Songs, and down to also uh, high growth AIM companies. Um, so we we work across the spectrum, and the buy-in is um, uh, there from whether you're a mega cap um, uh, or or a high growth smaller cap company. Um, and you know it's it's interesting; they all you know care about you know selected. Stakeholder groups, particularly when it comes to follow-on offerings, you know they they want to make sure uh, that their shareholders have a chance to to participate in the deal. Many want to uh, make sure that the employees have a chance to participate in the deal, uh, the general public, and and now with Deliveroo um, and Pension and and other deals uh, that we've worked on, uh, we've also now allowing customers to be able to participate in the deal. So um, that traction with companies is um, is coming and it's it's coming thick and fast in the UK. France, uh, we've we've literally just launched France um, a couple of days ago. I think two days ago we made the announcement. Um, uh, we have the top three uh, stockbrokers in the countries so as Borsorama, Bors Direct, and Easy bors consuming an API that we have built. So we built that infrastructure where they're consuming it. Um, so when a company does a follow on. Um, it can easily and in real time be accessed by uh, these individuals behind uh, who have broker broker accounts with these uh, with these brokerages. So I, I have a very strong belief that we'll have incredible traction in France. We haven't done our first deal yet. Uh, there are deals in the pipe that we're looking at, but uh, stay tuned and watch the space. Um,
0: there's much more to come. And I guess you know Nasdaq, NICE and other. You know, U.S. exchanges would perhaps be uh, uh, the biggest prizes that you would be going after. Is that something that's uh, likely or or possible in the, on the horizon? Do you think? Yeah, it's a it's a very obvious market, isn't it? Um, if you kind of look at the companies
1: that have that have listed, um, you, you know, or in, in in the U.S. more you know recently, companies like Airbnb and DoorDash and Coinbase and Roblox. You talk about companies with huge communities, companies with you know tens, if not hundreds, of millions of customers. Uh, companies that actually have a, a stakeholder-centric model at their core um, and would very much like uh, technology like ours to to enfranchise them. So um, it is a place that that we're really excited to move into. Uh, we're, we're having very natural conversations with um, uh, with institutions in the U.S. Um, that you know can be can be good strategic partners for us. Um, and, um, you know, again, stay tuned. Um, you know, we're, we're not there yet. There's a long way to go, um, but
0: uh, we would certainly plan on, on launching in the U.S. I mean, you talked about enfranchising investors, and, and this has been an interesting debate, isn't it, over the last few months, mm-hmm. where we've had, for mm-hmm. example, retail investors managing to move markets and mm-hmm. uh, even, you know, uh, take on certain hedge funds, for example, mm-hmm. with GameStop or mm-hmm. AMC and other companies like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even regulators were kind of thinking, you know, perhaps they needed to to get involved, either to quote unquote protect retail investors, mm-hmm. um, and, and then at the same time, you had certain. Politicians, you know, complaining that the the field just, you know, was was being rigged still Mm -hmm. against retail investors. uh, When, for example, some of these online trading apps like Robinhood were preventing people from buying or selling GameStop or 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 getting involved or or out of other stocks. Where do you stand on this in terms of the balance between giving the retail investors the same kind of access and the same opportunities as "Quote unquote," sophisticated investors um, versus protecting them from getting involved in stuff that perhaps they don't really understand.
1: Well, I, if you look at our
0: business, and that's a, I can talk about
1: sort of where we focus, which is public markets. The answer is in the name, right? It's public markets. The markets are either public or they're not, and you can't have it both ways. Um, I think of it. I think of it a little bit like this. You know, imagine a world where you have, you know, your biggest. Um, you know uh department stores like harrods and selfridges or saks or whoever and have all their merchandise on sale down 95% um you know through the year and the only catch is you have to be worth a billion dollars or more to to avail of that sale price you know ordinary mortals like us we have to wait in line uh, wait our turn buy full price and not even from uh the the department store we're buying full price from a billionaire that bought it one second ago at a 95% discount Um, you know, imagine we lived in that world, I can guarantee you, it wouldn't last very long. And it would quite quickly equalize, uh, because there'd be riots on the streets. And that is exactly how the capital markets work. That's how our part of of the markets works. You know, these IPOs and these follow ons, these big institutional, uh, these big sales that happen of of, of stocks and typically happen at discounted prices only go to institutions. And, you know, the crazy part is we're not talking about shoes and perfumes and shirts. We're talking about ownership in some of the largest, most generationally unique companies uh, in our time, companies like Airbnb, companies like you know, Coinbase and, and so on. So um, it, it just doesn't make sense in the world that we live in, public markets, to um, have two uh, classes of citizens
0: with different types of access. I can see this is something you 're uh, particularly passionate about, which I guess is perhaps one of the reasons why you founded a uh, primary bid in in the first place but before we get to the kind of founding story, I just want to perhaps get a bit more on you and and, and how you got here because i guess it it 's not a typical uh, journey uh, in the sense that, you know, for a start, you're not from the UK, you, you grew up in India and, and Singapore, I think mm-hmm. perhaps you can take us back. I mean, did you come from a long line of entrepreneurs? Was it like a normal middle-class, you know, family life there? Tell me a bit more about, about where you came from and, and, you know, we'll get a sense, yeah. a better sense of how you got here. V- very much a, a middle-class guy, uh, born in
1: Bombay. I mean, it's, uh, amazing. The opportunity that I was able to get in the West, um, Considering that my dad, you know, used to walk barefoot, you know, a mile and a half to go to school, um, you know, one generation later, you know, we're, we're you know, here we are, and we're, we're building such an amazing company and the opportunity to do so. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, upbringing is, is a funny thing, it, you know, because I had a chance of growing up in, in the East, uh, you know, in, in India and Singapore. And then i spent a huge part of my life um both as a college student and in my career in in the us and, and in the uk so i've had sort of uh experience on both sides of the coin and uh, if you think about here's a here's sort of how i sort of think about it in terms of a western upbringing versus a an indian indian upbringing you know so you know the the western parent typically you know, looks at their kid and you, they say, you know, you see, you know, whoever, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or whoever uh, that you admire, you say, you know, you work hard, uh, you, you strive, you know, that's what you can be, that's what you can achieve. Whilst the Asian uh, upbringing is a little subtly different, you know, it's like they, they'll point to, uh, you know, uh, someone, you know, that's that's not not achieved much and just say, hey, you know, you F up, and that's what you're going to turn into, right? So that you you're kind of motivated <laughs> by, by fear as opposed to uh uh you know uh, ambition um and and that's probably just because there is no social security in out there there's no net to catch you if you fail so um you 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 know you can go to zero in these countries uh so you have to protect against it it's probably where it comes from but um
0: I was able to get uh sort of as an incentive does that does that work yeah. better <laughs> Yeah, you know, funnily, I feel like I got a, a healthy mix of, of both um, ways of looking at life. And so, so you, were, you know, brought up you had these experiences both in uh, in India. But I mean, when you, your, you said your, your father, you know, used to walk barefoot to uh, to yeah. school and, and, and the yeah. like. But presumably, by the time you came into the world, they, they'd you know uh, been a bit more upwardly mobile and, and things were a bit more secure for you and your family.
1: Yeah, he he got a job in Bombay, um, in uh, now Mumbai, uh, and uh, with a multinational company um, sort of working his way up. And he had this incredible opportunity presented to him to move to Singapore um, and as an expatriate. And so, um, you know, part of that package, which kind of he insisted on was, hey, my kid's education has to be at a top tier private school and and you got to pay for it, you know. Um, And it enabled me to then go to, you know, go to go to a great school in Singapore called United World College where uh, super diverse, it had con- it had you know, students from every country in the world um, virtually. And it just, one of the things I got from that experience was not afraid of the world. I just, you know, I can move anywhere and be comfortable. I'm not sort of, I feel um, at home uh, in this whole world. And By the way, London kind of embodies that too. And it's just such an incredibly
0: diverse population, Uh, probably what made me feel very much at home when I moved here. And again, I I don't want to pander to any stereotypes, but, you know, uh, focus on education and then presumably, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, and there was also a focus on, you know, becoming a professional in uh, of some sort like a lawyer or an accountant or a doctor or something, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. But, uh, but, but so, so when you kind of decided to go down the entrepreneurial path, that was uh, something they were like, Oh, that's, that's not a great idea. You know, you know, it's very risky or, or were they perfectly happy and encouraging for that? No. So, so they've been, yes, there was very much a framework,
1: you know, as a kid, this is kind of the path. And, and, I come out of that I'm very happy with that because I was forced to learn things then that I that I look that I'm using now and I I'm, I'm interested in now like stuff like you know physics and maths you know which has so many dimensions to it now that I'm able to uh you know thank god that that I I went through that that rigor as a kid but that was definitely forced upon me as a kid and I you know went to college to be a doctor uh, you know as a good immigrant boy and failed miserably uh, but it was okay, you know. I, I think by then I was in a good school. You know, parents had also kind of understood that you know kids need to fly. Um, I, the, you know, we had for telling a, a candid story of, of, of a pretty uh, jarring moment as a family in our lives when you know my mother passed away in a car accident. And I think as a as a group, we just realized life is too short. You know, do what you love. You know, just sort of and and. The move, I just, I was in banking at the time and, you know, I just hated it. And I always hated it, but I just like, really, why, why do I bother? And, you know, at that time I told my dad, I'm just thinking about ditching it and trying to do something on my own. And he was like, yeah, I support you. Go have, go, go spread your wings. You know, you've, you've, I've, I've spent money on you, on your brain <laughs> it's college and stuff. So, so hopefully you've got something there that can uh, uh, do you well and, uh, you know, make the most of it. So it was. It was quite a, a good, um, you know. It's, you know, post my twenties, that, that there's, there's, there wasn't any more sort of you know, push d- down a path. They were super encouraging uh,
0: for me to find my way. And, and this was, and so I mean, I guess this was, you know, perhaps a positive aspect that came out of this tragedy of, of, of your mother passing away in, in, in the car accident that that you this moment almost you know set you on a different path perhaps or perhaps gave you more the, the freedom to pursue your dreams and and to, to make every you know minute count in a way
1: yeah you know it's kind of it's hard to, to think that something like that would create a positive I just don't like to think of it that way uh, sure. but, but it's uh, yes it, it it freed it freed my mind um, you know if I look at my life I kind of everything that happened before that day is almost like, I don't even think about it as much anymore. It's sort of, you, you definitely dramatically change as a person with a, with a, with a, uh, experience like that. And, um, uh, it's who knows what would have happened, right? I, I maybe this was a path I would have sort of, uh, been on anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, here we are today and, um, I'm really proud of what we've built at primary bid and, um, you know, I sort of don't think about everything that led it, led me here, and all those, all those, those sad things that that might have contributed to it. But um, I am just sitting here as a, as a very proud, uh, you know, uh, collaborator with my, with my team uh, on what we're building.
0: Okay. Well, look, uh, Anand, we're going to come back to your uh, story or the rest of it in in just a moment. I just want to remind our listeners that this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. And in this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. And you can find out more at www.fintech.com www.parisfintechforum.com. Um, so Arnon, so this was uh, kind of in your early 20s that you started kind of going down this, you, you, you jacked in the, the investment banking? No,
1: no. So late 20s, I was in, I was a banker um, all the way till about 27, 28. I, I started my career um, with Bank of America in New York. I you know, They gave me the opportunity to move to London for a year. Um, I did that. Uh, I actually went back to New York because I loved I loved that city. I had unfinished business there. Um, but then um, I, I quickly realized that you know my my life had moved on, and I, I want I actually want to set my roots in uh, in London. So I moved with uh, Credit Suisse uh, to to London. Um, and it was in around twenty seven when, when I left banking. and um, I took a year off, uh, grew my beard, um, uh, you know, haven't, haven't shaved it off since, uh, and, uh, just kind of did nothing until
0: I was ready. And then, and here we are. And then you went straight into primary bid. It was while you were kind of, you know, having your year off, you, uh, decided that was what you wanted to do. No, actually I had a, this is my second rodeo.
1: Uh, I started a, a hedge fund, uh, which I ran for about eight years, um, uh, that sort of invested it, that. Took, took advantage of, um, you know, privileged access, right? Access to deals that the individuals, uh, you know, weren't able to get. And in that experience, I just sort of, you know, you realize that actually there's a bigger opportunity, there's a bigger goal here if, if we want to take it on. I mean, it was audacious, right? It's just like, gosh, like let's, uh, but, you know, as we've talked about in the first half of your podcast, you know, you, you just you just throw caution to the wind sometimes, certain experiences, you know, give you the courage to do that. And you, um, so I, I left it. And um, then we
0: started primary bid to actually take on this, uh, this huge new uh, challenge. So, so just to be clear, you by working with privileged access and high net worth individuals, giving them access to, you know, great deals, uh, you realize that there was an opportunity mm-hmm. for those who weren't in the same privileged position, and that this could be, you know, a, a kind of crazy moonshot of a, of a fintech that, uh, that, that might just work. Yeah, exactly. It was, you know,
1: it just, it just felt like if it works, we have done something so incredibly good and, and meaningful right in this uh, in the sort of sector that we're in. Um, It would be a generationally unique opportunity to pull it off. Right. And it, it, it was hard. It was so hard. Um, but yeah, it was, and by the way, it came out not just from my time at the hedge fund, even in, in banking, um, you know, when you do an IPO or follow on, you see who buys it, right? And you're saying, well, why can't the individuals that actually own some of this stock buy it? I mean, and, and I use that word a lot, ownership, right? It, it's it's incredible. So. I'll digress a bit, but if you wanted to go buy a share in the stock market, you know, you would open up your brokerage account and you would buy that share and that company would just be sitting passively, have nothing to do with that share that you've purchased. But companies have these moments in time and it happens to the tune of a trillion dollars a year, but, but, you know, where they go out and uh, raise money Um, and in doing so effectively, what they're saying is I want to bring in new ownership, additional ownership to this company and I'm going to go actively seek out new owners of, of, of this company. And that's what happens in an IPO. And that's what happens on a follow-on fundraiser. The company is going out actively seeking new ownership. And can you believe it? They can't actually go out to, and, and get that and, and offer that ownership to their stakeholders. They can't go out and offer it to their employees, their shareholders, their uh, customers, you know, it's just not, they can only offer it to institutions and, um, it's something that just seems, it's just fundamentally unfair, you know, no matter which side, uh, if you're on the buy side or sell side, it's it's quite
0: quite visible. You've, you've talked about the U.S. as being, you know, kind of the, uh, the, the next frontier and an obvious uh, target for you. But, uh, you know, what's happening uh, in the coming months for primary bid? Should we expect fundraising? Should we expect more deals, maybe in Asia, maybe in your old stomping ground of Singapore, mm-hmm. uh, where obviously, uh, you know, capital markets are quite developed? Uh, what, mm-hmm. What's next for primary bid? So one of the things that
1: blocks us from from just expanding so quickly is regulation. Now, you know, the Fin part of FinTech is so important here. We cannot have this idea of, of, you know, move fast, break things, because because we operate in a regulated environment. Um, It is crucial to how we think about our business and so on. So when we launched in France, we actually went and got fully regulated in France by the AMF and the ACPR. That's a big deal, Um, and it takes a while. You need to build a relationship with the regulator. You need to explain to them what you're doing and so on. So it's not as simple as, hey, I want to go to Singapore, and I'm going to launch there. There's a huge body of work that we have to undertake to launch in a new country. Um, We're undergoing that body of work now in the U.S., which is uh, to get a a broker-dealer license. Um, And it's really important uh, you know, because it enables you to do things uh, the right way, so to speak. Um, but what you will see um, is deals in continental Europe. So we've done, we've launched France um, and because uh, you know, the structure of the EU is quite easy to passport permissions to new countries. Uh, so uh, you'll, you'll expect to see us doing deals all over Europe. Uh, hopefully um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we're, we're you know, doing something in the U S uh, in the medium term. Um, and um you know, we're excited about thinking about new products. You know, I, I, you know, when I heard um, the chancellor come out and say um, that they want to do the UK's first green guilt, um, which is an incredible uh, idea and opportunity that we thought, well, why not allow that to be purchased by the individuals as well? You know, why would that have to be purely institutional? And uh, our infrastructure supports uh, guilt issuances uh, very well. So, Um, you know, it's those kind of things that that we think about. We think about
0: expansion. In terms of uh, the company itself, primary bid, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about revenues, about growth, about fundraisings, about, you know, path to profitability and the like? Yeah, look,
1: we can be a profitable company now if we wanted to be, Um, but we would just be sort of limiting ourselves to, uh, you know, a certain geography and a certain product. So we're still very much... Um, in in expansion phase, um, we're we're growing incredibly fast. Uh, for context, uh, you've done like I said, 160 deals or so. A uh, hundred of them um, happened in just in basically the last 12 months, right? And so um, you can imagine what that what that does to our numbers. Um, and you know, judging by the sort of traction we're getting in the market, and plus you know the new geographies we're launching into. I can
0: see that should uh you know growth trajectory continue um and at that same pace. Recently we've seen you know major investors like BlackRock and others really kind of talking about reducing investment in companies that are mm. polluting or mm. or you know producing lots of greenhouse gases mm. and the like. Mm. How do you see that affecting your business and and how do you see it on the demand side from customers? I mean do do you kind mm. of get a sense that this is where this is where the wind is blowing, uh, for want of a better pun, yeah. uh, that that this is something that investors are, are, you know, keener on going forward? Definitely. I mean, it's a massive agenda, item, right? It, um, I mean, look, we hit
1: virtually every part of that um, ESG, uh, you know, um, term, right? So we're on... Everything we do is a, is a good governance right so it's that, that that you get every company gets a very nice G tick on on what we do um, you know that the, the society or the stakeholder centric model and allowing stakeholders like your customers and like your uh, you know employees access to one of these really prized privileged deals is, is, a, is a really big deal um, and on the east side look we've um, the, the London Stock Exchange has really cool, Mark. Uh, it's called the Green Mark, um, and you know you have to be doing certain things to qualify for it as a company, and then you get you get the Green Mark. And what we've seen is companies that actually have the Green Mark um, get a, an incredibly different and, and strong profile of demand from uh, from from investors. So uh,
0: definitely, uh, to use your term, uh, the way the wind is blowing. Obviously, your your company is doing well. You're getting more traction, uh, as you say. You're, you've got a pretty clear path to profitability you're expanding into new geographies new products whenever a company alights on a on a good idea that you know seems to work obviously that can invite uh, competitors and the like uh, what's happening out there mm-hmm. as far as your neighborhood goes are you seeing other companies doing similar things to you do you have big rivals stateside for example who are already doing this in the u.s you know, we're not a a Me Too company, right? This thing that we've put together is a is a new
1: category, a new definition of um, of, of individual participation in capital markets, and um, that'll always be the way we we operate. We, we're never going to sort of emulate something else. We just gonna, we we love being creative uh, and creating our own category, um, and we get really encouraged when we hear, um, you know news out there where where companies want to do certain things, right? So when, you know, when Robinhood came out and said they want to do, uh, allow their customers access to IPOs, it's amazing. Because that's the kind of thing that we facilitate. If you think about it, as I said, in France, we plug into the equivalent of Robinhood, right? We plug into the top uh, three stockbrokers in the country uh, through an API to actually win the mandates and allow their underlying customers to participate. So, um what we're seeing is is and hopefully we've been a, a small part of this um a, a sort of renaissance of you know uh, of, of, of of ecosystem players coming out and saying hey we care about these things like ipos follow-ons and we want to offer individuals access to it and anytime that happens um it works very much in our favor because we enable um all of these guys to do it there's um, there's no other type of company that kind of does it the way we do, or, or thinks about it the way we do, because we don't have, an any existing uh, conflict within the system. We're not a stockbroker; we never will be. It's not a business we want to get into. Um, we're not an investment bank; uh, we don't do the institutional business again. So that's that's not a business we want to get into. Um, we're effectively that infrastructure that connects. Um, uh, you know, those individual investors via the stockbrokers or directly into um, these these wholesale
0: capital markets transactions. Okay, so it's not like you ought to be worried that if Robinhood decides to go down this route that it's going to eat your lunch, because actually that if and when you're in the US, they would, you know, probably be coming via your infrastructure to do that. So actually, that's a good thing.
1: I would hope so. Yeah, they... Um, We'd, we'd be creating more lunch for each other um, as opposed to anybody eating anyone's <laughs> lunch uh, in that regard.
0: Food and cake for everyone. I'm getting hungry. Just, uh, just talking <laughs> about it. Um, but uh, look, this is a a, a a question that I ask uh, everyone who comes on the uh mm. Fintech podcast on uh, end. So uh, mm. I hope uh, you've got a, a good answer for me. So the question is this, what is the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done in your life? And your answer cannot be primary bid.
1: Okay. Um, well, there are certain things within Primary Bid that that yeah, I just have to say is so insanely uh, uh, creative, and you know, uh, I'll name two things, okay, and then I'll I'll name a third thing if you want. That's outside of <laughs> Um The first one was uh, we had two major dents in, in the universe, right? The first uh, one was Compass Group. Uh, it was about this this time last year. It was the first time in history. And we're talking about hundreds of years of history that a, that a FTSE 100 company, so a major mega cap company, um, raised uh, capital from institutions and uh, individuals at the same time on an accelerated uh, book. bill. never happened before. It was it was totally groundbreaking. Um, it was Deliveroo was the other one you talked about it, but let, you know let's not forget that this was the world's first fully integrated in-app IPO to let customers into a deal. And it was shockingly creative, um, completely different, it created a whole new type of IPO. It's just, and, and, the, and the global um, uh, response from issuers on the back of that has been nothing short of, you know, tremendous. So it's just, it, it would be hard for me to answer that question without talking about those two things. Um, if I was trying to think of something outside of primary bit, I mean, there, there are things I would I would I would say, uh, but but maybe maybe the best one, and and most people, thinking about uh, listening to this wouldn't find it that, or maybe they would find it crazy. But I, I have to say, it's my daughter having my child. And it's she blows my mind every single day. She's two years old. You know what it's like to have a kid, and yeah, every, you know, there's, you know, everyone in the world pretty much has it has a child, and but this notion that we've created consciousness a new human being a new person thinking you know creating uh, this new individual and and how they how they're growing you get to nurture them is um is one of the most special brilliant things i've ever seen and the fact that she has my mother's nose to go back to a point earlier just you know shows something of, of immortality somewhere there so it's it's kind of cool
0: uh, yeah, I guess it's uh, like uh, having a very own startup made from your own kind of uh, flesh and blood. So, uh, so you've you got, you got two startups on your hands. Yeah right now um, but look uh, that's a uh, really uh, nice way to end on uh, Anand so I really just want to thank you especially because as, although our listeners probably won't have noticed I know that you weren't feeling at your best I really appreciate uh, even more so you're taking the time uh, to speak to us uh, today so Anand uh, Sambasivan co-founder and CEO of Primary Bid thanks so much for joining me on the Fintech podcast
1: Elliot so, so great to be here I really
0: enjoyed the experience and uh, look forward to seeing you soon thank you likewise Primary bid is one of those apparently simple ideas that seem to be fiendishly difficult to pull off due to regulation, the need for partnerships and a reluctance on the part of companies raising money to do things differently. That it's succeeded in Europe and the UK so far with more to follow and is practically profitable speaks volumes for the founders' focus and their determination to put the P back into IPO. So thank you, Arnan Sambasivan, and thank you for listening to the Fintech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter, at Paris Fin Forum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye bye.